can remember the first few times that we took family pictures with little children. If you have kids, then you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever tried to take the perfect family picture, then you know how easy it is for things to go wrong. But have you ever noticed the pictures that uh, advertisers try to get us to believe is the perfect family picture? I can remember a few years ago when, um, when we did our first ma- one of our first mailings here at Northwest, and it was going to be something family-oriented, and, and we went on to find the, uh, the stock photos of the family, and it was something uh, like this. They are the perfect family, and that's what the advertising uh, industry tries to sell us is the perfect family. I've oftentimes looked at those pictures. In fact, I looked at a few of them yesterday on uh, this website where you could get, you know, if you just search stock photo of family, and you start to wonder about those particular people there. And uh, you wonder what this guy's story is and her story and these little boys. And then you realize that sometimes they take these stock pictures and, uh, and these people aren't even a family. Because if you look at most families, um, like, you know, my wife's really good looking. And then you look at me, and I'm always looking at our family pictures going, yeah, not so good. I mean, if I, if I wasn't in there, so this family, they just went, well, he's really good looking, and she is, and these two little kids right there. And so you guys get together, and let's make a family picture. And that's what we end up with. We're a stock photo family. The problem is... Uh, that this picture and so many others uh, like it doesn't really represent the majority of families in this community outside of Northwest or at Northwest for that matter. Did you know that uh, today only about 25% of families in our culture are made up of biological children living with biological parents, both biological parents? In fact, if you do the math, then that means that an estimated 75% of families today are uh, one of several things. Uh, There's a lot of single-parent families. That means that there's been a divorce or uh, there's uh, been a death of one of the spouses, and therefore there's a single parent. Uh, There may be a single uh, who has adopted children. There are blended families. We have a number of blended families that are here today, meaning husband and wife, one or the other, or both had previous marriages and have kids with those marriages, and they come together and they create a new family, and we call that a blended family. We have a lot at Northwest, a lot of families who have adopted children. Uh, They're either adopted or, in some cases, we have some families who have have fostered uh, children. And then living in the world that we live in today, let's not uh, kid ourselves, but There are families that are living together under a roof, and uh, there's no formal marriage. They're cohabitating. They're living together. Maybe it's a a man and a woman, and and one or the other of them or both have kids, and they're just living together under the same roof. And even here at Northwest, we have grandparents that are raising their grandchildren because of some tragic events in the lives of their kids. You see, the truth is that we all start out with an idea of what the family is supposed to look like. Maybe for you it looks something uh, like this stock photo up here. Mom and a dad with 
two little kids and everybody has a smile on their face. But the problem is that for many of us, in fact, dare I say, most of us, somewhere along the line, somewhere along life's journey, something happens. Events take place. And all of a sudden, the stock family photo just doesn't look like us anymore. And why is that? That's because we live in a broken world. And I want to say to you this morning as we start out that our families don't experience pain and brokenness just simply because of past mistakes or because of divorce or because of death or because some type of other disappointment. It's actually much bigger than that. As God completed his act of creation, right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says that he looked at everything that he created and he said it's very good. Not just it's good, but it's very good. Everything that he had created. You get to Genesis chapter 2 and he, and he says, one thing though, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates a woman and, and then it just looks as if everything is perfect. Everything is, is as it, intend, it was intended to be. That was, of course, if you know your Bibles, until we get to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, in the garden, Adam and Eve disobey God. God gives them one very simple command, what not to do. And they disobey God, and as a result of that, sin enters into the world, death comes, a perfect world is destroyed, and since that day, Scripture has been very clear about the pattern of humanity. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through, through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's very important for us theologically, no matter where you are this morning, to understand that the world is the way that it is because of sin. Sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, and death came as a result of sin, and death has passed to all of us because we are all sinners. That is the plight, that is the problem of mankind. And so it really doesn't matter who's elected president here in just a few weeks. We're going to still have sin with us. This world is broken. It's not as God intended for it to be. And in a broken world, there's going to be kids that grow up in tough situations and those scars will remain with them unless they get help dealing with whatever those circumstances are. Those scars will remain. The consequences of the circumstances under which they grew up in will, can remain with them through their entire lives. We're going to have kids in a broken world who need a mom and dad because something has taken place with their biological parents, maybe a, a pregnancy outside of marriage and a and a single woman who, who, who can't take care of that child, and so that child is put up for adoption. There are going to be kids that need moms and dads to love them and provide for them. There are going to be people in a broken world who contract some kind of disease, and as a result of that disease, they will lose their life. And as a result of them losing their life, there'll be a family that is broken. Mom's not there, or dad's not there. In a broken world, there's going to be uh, husbands and wives that are going to ignore their marriage vows and they're going to want out. 
here's the truth of the matter. And if you don't get a lot out of what I say this morning, maybe there are some of you that need to be reminded of this, that when your marriage breaks up, when you decide that you're no longer going to abide by what you committed yourself to do on that day that you gave yourself to that other person in the presence of God and of witnesses, when you decide not to do that, please understand that it not only affects you, but it has long-term consequences for your kids. Kids live with the consequences of choices and decisions that were not their own. And so often that is the tragic consequence of divorce. And so if we're honest this morning, many of the families that we know, many of us don't look exactly like that stock photo. In fact, if the truth were known, there's a lot of families that are here at Northwest that don't look exactly like that. These are people that we do life with. These are people that uh, we're in life group with. Our our kids are in student ministry together. We love these people, but each one of them has a different story. I want to tell you just a few of those stories uh, today. Uh, This is Jeff and Lauren uh, Bowman. Some of you know Jeff and Lauren. Uh, They came to our church, to Northwest, uh, not too uh, long ago. And I had the opportunity, actually, to meet uh, Jeff uh, in men's fraternity. Jeff was part of uh, my small group, and I began to hear his story. When you look at Jeff and Lauren, and you look at this picture, and you look at their two beautiful children, you would look at this picture, and you go, well, stock photo, right? Everything's great. The problem is we don't know the story behind this photo. See, what you don't know is that Lauren, her parents were divorced when she was in college. And if that weren't bad enough, her dad was a worship pastor at their church, and he had an affair. And as a result of that affair, he lost his job and ultimately lost his marriage. Lauren, growing up uh, in that environment, Lauren made a decision before she met Jeff. She made a decision to get married to a man that was in the military. And she was married when she was 21 and discovered quickly that marriage was not a quick fix for a bad relationship, and that marriage ended very badly. What you can't see behind this face of Jeff is the story that his life tells. Jeff's parents were divorced when he was just a small child, and he lived with his dad for most of his uh, elementary years until he and his brother were removed from the home because his father had a problem uh, with substance abuse. He went to live with his mom and his sister in middle school, And I remember Jeff telling me at men's fraternity in our small group that for about 10 years, he did not see his father and he harbored anger and bitterness towards his dad. And it wasn't until about three months before his dad actually died from substance abuse that Jeff was able to go and and have a conversation with his dad and be able to forgive his dad so that he might go on with his life. Not exactly the stock photo family. One of the cool things that we see represented here at Northwest is, is, is adoption. I get really excited uh, about adoption. Some of you have heard me say this before, you know, with our three kids, we love all three of them, don't get me wrong, but we didn't really get to choose them, right? I mean, we got to choose to have them, but you know, when, when the baby is born, you don't go, yeah, it wasn't what I was thinking. I'll take that one, right? really cool thing about adoption, and I think that that's 
It's really great in the parallel of Scripture that Scripture says that, that as followers of Jesus, when we place our trust in Christ alone, we're adopted into the family of God. And I think that's awesome. Dan and Christy Baker came to Northwest about uh, four years ago. And married in 1998, they always knew they wanted to adopt. There was a little girl born in central China in 2009. That's little Lily uh, right there. And that little girl needed a family. We don't know all the circumstances, but we do know that she needed a family. And Dan and Christy uh, needed a little girl in their home. And in 2011, Lily became part of the Baker family just before she turned two. And then three years later, another little girl also needed a home, and Dan and Christy and Lily welcomed little Kendall uh, into their home. And they are a great, great picture of the redemptive, restorative work of God in people's lives. And I love their story. The next family I remember meeting them, I believe it was sometime in 2008, and um, I can remember meeting them and thinking, they really do look like the stock photo. I mean, they were just, they're really good-looking people. And uh, Brad and Lisa Evans came uh, to Northwest. They moved to Cary in 2007. And I will never forget, in fact, it seems like it was just weeks ago, uh, getting a phone call in 2009. Brad was on a business trip in California. And Lisa had gone uh, to the doctor just because she was having some flu-like symptoms and thought that she just simply needed some type of an antibiotic. And while she was there at the doctor, the doctor recognized that there was something very, very wrong, and she was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And in 2013, Lisa went to be with Jesus. I can't help but think, and over the years as I've talked to Brad, I know that in 1988 when they were married and they looked at their beautiful family years later that God had given them, that this was never part of their plan. They never thought that that's, the, that's what God would do. And yet, they lived with the brokenness of losing a mother. When I first met uh, Angie and her family, uh, I can remember the first night, actually, that I met, with, met them. I did not uh, meet them here at church. I met them because they came to uh, Discover Northwest at our house. And I'll never forget them showing up uh, at our house. And I went to the door and opened the door and in walked this really sharp mom and dad with three kids that were kind of stair-stepped. And each one of them shook my hand and said, uh, good evening. Thank you for having us in your home. And I went, that's weird. Like kids just don't do that. I thought, wow, they are the stock photo family. They appeared to be the perfect family in every way. Three well-behaved kids. Mom and dad, high school sweethearts. Dad was at the beginning of his career as a cardiothoracic surgeon. Angie had worked very hard to put him through medical school, and it appeared that they were right on the threshold of the American dream. Some of you know her and her husband now that God gave her, Dan, and their story is just an incredible story of God's redemption and his grace. But Dan and Angie's story reminds me a lot that some of the stories of people here today, maybe some of you, 
things so very often are not exactly as they would appear in a picture. This was definitely the story of Dan and Angie. Listen to this one. I met my wife when I was 19 years old, working a summer job, um, going to community college. Uh, got married a year later. After a few years, decided I needed to do something more for a career and raise a family. So went back to school, went to Penn State, got a job like that, right back where we grew up. Her parents were there, my parents were there, all of our family. Um, had two girls, found a, a local church, that's where I got saved, and um, everything was great. And then after 18 years, um, which you would think after 18 years, what, what could go wrong, right? I mean, you're living life, you're being an American dream, really. And then just things started getting distant, right? She started getting distant. Until one day I discovered that she wanted a completely different lifestyle that didn't include me. When that came out, it was, it was a big celebration for her because it was completely new freedom and I can go off and live a different life that's when I had to, you know, what do I do now? And I've been married for all my adult life. You know, here I am, 30-some years old, and now what do I do? Sixteen, I went out on my first date, and um, three years later, after I graduated from high school, we were married. We had been married 13 years, and we had three beautiful children, healthy, smart, and really we're supposed to be coming into a season that life was supposed to be really good. And in one phone call, literally everything just kind of began to unravel. My heart was just trying to catch up with the fact that he had even been unhappy in our marriage. And then trying to look at my kids and figure out what does this look like for them? And so we committed that we weren't just going to give up. But as time went on, um, it was just a matter of months before those decisions were taken out of my hands completely. He shared with me that he would be moving out and that we needed to separate. And he did. 14 years of marriage. Everything just seemed hopeless in a way that I wondered if I would ever be able to breathe again or smile again or laugh. Some of you, even as you listen and watch a story like that, you've been there. Others of you, you find yourself in that place today. And then there's some of you that if you're really honest right now, and you don't have to be outwardly, just internally, if you're really honest right now, you know that's the story that you're going to tell here very soon, unless things change. See, here's what we know. The events of Genesis chapter 3, as I said earlier, they ushered in the problem of sin into the world. 
while it's true that we all experience brokenness, it's also true that we don't have to remain broken people. (laughs) That is really the great news of the gospel in a nutshell, that while we're broken, we don't have to remain broken. No matter what the circumstances of your, your life may be today, you are in need of redemption. You may look like the stock photo family today. You're still in need of redemption. No matter where you are up here, no matter what your story is, the story of Scripture is all about restoration and redemption. I said to somebody just this week that I was sitting with that if I did not believe that that was true, I wouldn't do what I do. I would have no reason to sit with people and offer them hope if I did not believe that the God who gave us this book, the God who wrote this book, that he is a God of restoration, that he is a God of redemption, that while we're broken, we don't have to stay broken. We can be put back together again. We can be made beautiful again, that God can do something incredible in our lives. In fact, we saw in a recent series that we did where we took you all the way through the grand narrative of Scripture, we showed you over and over and over again that the theme of Scripture is all about restoration and redemption. In fact, John chapter 3, verse 17, we always look at 16, we're familiar with 16, but verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's what He came for. He knew that this world was broken, that we needed to be redeemed, that we needed to be restored. And so he sent his son, Jesus. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not those that have it all together, because that would be none of us. And Paul illustrated this redemptive, restorative act of God so well in his second letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. And if you have your Bible, just turn with me there very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 to 10, just real briefly. Paul writes to the people there in Corinth. And by the way, I've been to Corinth and heard uh, the stories of the history of Corinth. Corinth was an incredibly evil place. Very, very modern city for that day, a port city. If it was to be had in the ancient world, it was there in Corinth, but people were broken. People were messed up. People needed God's redemptive, restorative act in their life. And Paul wrote to these people, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Here's what you need to understand about clay jars or clay pots. They were the throwaway containers of the ancient world. Their lifespans were generally just a year or two at the most. They were used to store and transport water or or wine, or grain, or even some type of family treasure would be put in a clay jar or a clay pot. They were used just for the mundane tasks of daily life. And every archaeological excavation site in the Middle East, you would find remains of these clay jars. 
No one took note of clay jars. They were so common. In fact, when I was uh, there in that part of the world, we were in the city of Laodicea, and I can remember seeing just shards, little pieces of clay pots all over the place, and they tell you, you know, these are antiquities, don't take them. Everybody does. And so I gave in to temptation, and I grabbed just a little piece of a clay jar. And I rationalized it away by saying they're so common, they're all over the place, they can't, clearly are not antiquities. If they were, they would have gathered them all up. And so I stuck it in my pocket, and it's one of the few things that I've done in my life that I regret, stealing that antiquity from uh, Greece. But they were common. They were they were just simple things used for convenience. And if one of them was broken, there was really no great tragedy because they were cheap and they were easy to replace. And so Paul takes this penetrating metaphor and he says that he and likewise us, we are jars of clay. We're frail, we're weak, we're temporal creatures. Paul says, verse 7, but we have this treasure. <laughs> the treasure is the illuminating power described in the preceding verse in verse verse 6. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In, in other words, God provides with the full creation of his full creation power with which he spoke things into existence. He does that through us, through these jars of clay, transformational gospel power. And so men and women like you and like me that are so common and so ordinary, just like those clay pots were in the ancient days. God takes them and he shines himself through that broken clay jar. And as a result, we become something usable. Without Jesus, we're simple, common, ordinary people who just live and die. But with Jesus, our story can be different and should be different. Followers of Jesus are never powerful in and of themselves. That's the problem for so many of us is that we think we can do life on our own, that we think we can uh, do marriage on our own, that we think we can do parenting on our own, only to come to realize all we are is clay pots. We're broken. But with God, great things are possible. Our weakness provides the ground for God's power. And so the breaking of our clay pots through the crushing circumstances of life allows Jesus Christ to shine through us. And so in all of this, Paul is graphically stating that our weakness is essential to and is necessary in order that God might display himself through us. But it only happens in brokenness. And when something is broken, then that's when God begins to work and perform his restorative, redemptive act in the life of a human being. Watch the rest of Daniel 9 through 12. So as a single dad walking my kids to school right there in our neighborhood, there was a woman I met, and um, she was plugged in at Northwest and just walking the kids to school every morning, you know, just pie and a few here and there, and then eventually finding out what she was going through because she was already healed by then, um, and how how strong she was, and I needed that strong faith that I didn't have. I just was in a great place, 
and the kids were in a decent place and we were learning how to do life in a new way. And I was fiercely protective of my own heart, but certainly of my children. And I really do think I would review you. At one point, I took some tomatoes from my garden over to her house, and, and it scared her a little bit because she really knew I was interested, and, and she told me, you know, you need to stop calling me. You don't don't come over here, you know. And um, and then I think <laughs> it took her a few days to... to, to and a phone not, call to Brian. Not so scary. So for me, the greatest source of strength I had was God's Word. There were weekends my kids were gone, and the house was empty, and everyone went home to their families, and I found myself very alone. But I just would take pieces of notebook paper and write down the scriptures I found, and I hid them all over in my car. They were in the sun visor. They were in my purse. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I am very thankful that I was challenged to try to do everything to save my marriage. And I'm thankful that I can look at my kids and tell them I did everything I knew to do. You can't just wipe your hands and be done. That's not the way it works. You need to be able to later on say to yourself, to your kids, to God, that you did everything you could do to reconcile that. Well, God has redeemed everything for me. He has redeemed the future and our laughter and our memories, time, and even dreams that just seemed lost, they're back. And to have him and our kids and two more daughters, I just couldn't imagine. And to see all those qualities I knew I needed in life, not even connecting the dots as much as my kids really need this loving finger and to have all that that is a story of God's redemption and of God's restorative act forever was a picture of it and I am so thankful for the great privilege of walking with Dan and Angie both through their story. What an incredible thing it is. I can remember Angie calling me one day, and I, I remember it so vividly. I was coming down 540, just getting ready to come off and get on to 55, and Angie said, I just don't know if I can do it. And I said to her that uh, the storms are raging right now, but God's going to bring blue skies again. God's going to do something great. If you've ever said that to somebody, you know that sometimes you say those things because you know those are the things that you're supposed to say, especially if you're a pastor. And I can remember ripping around then and getting on 55 and going, God, you better do this. Angie and I, we're almost like a brother and a sister at this point, and, and I just, just cried out to God, God, Show yourself to her and do something great in her life. And then to see what God did is, is just unbelievable. It wasn't too long after that that I met with Dan before they had any kind of a relationship. And 
Dan told me his story, and then he came back and told me he'd kind of noticed Angie, and kind of like a big brother, I'm kind of like, well, stop noticing Angie, because I'm pretty sure you're not good enough. I know her really well, not so sure about you yet. I remember telling Dan and Angie both, and they said it in the, in the, in the video, to do everything that they could to restore their marriage, even though they had biblical grounds for divorce, to do everything that they could, because someday they would want to say to their kids, we did everything that we could. And I can stand here with great confidence and tell you that both Dan and Angie did those things. And then to see God bring them into each other's lives and the family that God has knit together. It was a busy place over there. Five kids and just what can be an amazing season of life and yet what can be a, uh, a real challenging season of life. And yet it's good. But that's what God does. He takes broken, common, ordinary things, people that in situations that the rest of us might look at and go, God, I don't know if you can do anything with this. It's so tragic what's happened over here. God takes those things and he makes them beautiful again by displaying himself through the crushing circumstances of life. That's what he does. And I don't know where all of you are here this morning. I know that probably some of you, maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now and there's a little uncomfortableness maybe because of the, some of the circumstances in your life right now or what's already taken place or what you see is about to take place. And you're taking what God may be saying to you and you're saying, man, he's mad at me. He's disappointed in me. He knows what I've done and he's waiting to beat me with a big stick. Can I tell you that actually it's quite the opposite? I believe that most of the time when the Spirit of God starts working in our hearts, He's speaking to us because He loves us and He wants our, in this context, our marriages and our families to be everything that He created them to be. Certainly for His glory, but also for our good. We talk a lot here about God's glory, and we should, because that ultimately is why we, we, we were created, to bring glory to our Creator but let's not be mistaken that God does what he does, certainly for his glory. But do you believe that he does what he does for your good as well? Because he wants to display himself through the crushing circumstances of our lives. And maybe today needs to be the day when you allow God's redemptive work to begin in your life. Maybe for some of you, you've got just some tragic story and some events that have happened in your life and and as a result of that, maybe you're going and you're seeing counselors or you're talking to somebody and you're just always pointing back to those circumstances because you've never really dealt with those circumstances. You've never reconciled those things and let God's uh, redemptive work on the cross cover that. Maybe today would be the day when you allow God to begin that work in your life. It's also possible, in fact, it's not only possible, it's probable. In fact, it's fact. But there are some of you that are here today, and that's not your story just yet. But you know that you're beginning to drift in that direction. Maybe you're here this morning, you're a, you're a husband or you're a wife, a mom or a dad, and 
you've already began to, begun to make decisions, at least in your heart and in your head. Maybe some things that you haven't exactly acted out on yet, but you know that the end of that story for you is ruin unless something happens to change where you are right now. I can't help but think about the marriages, the families that are broken that could have been rescued if somebody would have cried out for help a little bit sooner. Maybe today should be the day when you invite someone else into your circumstances of life, someone that can challenge you. It's an important part of that process, by the way, to be challenged. Not many of us like that, but it's necessary. Somebody that you allow to speak truth into your life. Somebody that can not only challenge you, but can pray with you and encourage you and walk with you through your current story in your life. Because that's what God does. He takes broken things, things that seem to be ruined, dusty, seemingly useless things, and he makes them beautiful again. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 34, I want to read to you verses 18, 19, and 22. He wrote, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Because that's what God does. God, we're so thankful this morning for the redemptive, restorative act that the gospel represents. That you take what's broken and what seemingly is common and ordinary and in some respects may seem because of its brokenness and how ordinary it is that it's useless. You delight in taking those things, those jars of clay, you delight in showing yourself through that. We're thankful for that. So those crushing circumstances of life are what so often you use to break us to the point of usefulness. We understand who we are in relation to who you are. God, I pray that today you'd use your spirit right now to just move in the hearts of, of some that are here today that uh, already are dealing with the circumstances of their life that have brought them to the place they're at right now. But they need to talk through that. They need to reconcile that. They need to understand your plan and your purpose for that. And God, for others that are drifting casually to a point of ruinness in their life, God, may today be the day when they seek some help somebody to challenge them, to pray with them, to encourage them, to bring glory to you through their life. And as a result of that, to bring satisfaction in their life as well. We pray you'd use your spirit to do that work in hearts this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.